I'd like you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 14. We're going to be looking at 12 through 26. I'm not going to read the passage this morning because we're going to go through it verse by verse. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, uh, we, we start out our worship with, with prayer. Uh, we sing our doctrine. We sing our, our faith, our beliefs, and the songs that we sing. Uh, we, we worship in our giving. Uh, we worship in our catechism, which is an equipping time. And then we spend some time in the Word of God. And uh, we practice what we call expositional preaching here. Uh, we go line by line and try to uh, apply and interpret uh, the Bibles in such a way that we can, we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Uh, so that's where we are right now. And we're in Luke chapter 14. We've been talking about parables. And, you know, the, the question should arise, why, why parables? Why does Jesus use parables? And, and what do they have to do with us? Well, these are these stories that Jesus tells. They're, they're meant to be illustrations. And a lot of them are geared towards the Pharisees of the time. Uh, that's kind of important because those were the people that everybody thought was religious. Uh, those were the people that were well-respected in the community. Uh, and frequently the parables had a surprise in there for those folks who all expected that God was on their side and against everybody that was against them and so on and so forth. But uh, even more importantly, the parables should cause us to stop and think. Generally, they should lead us to ask a question, to search our hearts. They're not just stories about some culture that was far away and long ago. They're not just stories about people that are not like us, that we have nothing to do with. There are stories that are designed for us to examine our relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, examine who we are in, in, in God. Uh, John just talked about uh, our propensity to design a God according to our own desires. Well, there's stories that are designed to, to make us think about that. And generally, I, I like to, to phrase that, that way of thinking in a question. So here's the question for today here's a, that I believe Jesus would want us to ask ourselves if he were telling us the parable. And it is, what is important to you? What's important to you? Now, let me, let me just give you a, a little illustration here. Uh, back in World War II, uh, the, the Allied powers, uh, Joseph Stalin, Winston Churchill, Franklin Delano, Roosevelt were meeting and they're trying to come up with some strategy to defeat the, the German juggernaut that was rolling across uh, Europe. And, and uh, Roosevelt and, and Churchill were trying to convince Joseph Stalin of some particular point of strategy that they wanted him to adopt, that all three of them were going to... And Stalin was just... He didn't want any part of it. And he, came, he was coming up with all these lame excuses about why he couldn't do it. And finally, uh, Roosevelt says to him, there's no reason for your refusal. And in other words, Roosevelt was saying, I, I, I don't understand why you can't do this. Your excuses mean nothing to me. So Stalin turns around and tells the, the other two uh, this story about two Bedouins. Two Bedouin uh, shepherds, two Bedouin nomads uh, somewhere out in the Mideast. And uh, the first one goes to the second one and he says, can I borrow your rope? And the second one goes, oh yeah, I'd like to lend you my rope, but I need it for my camel. And the first one goes, well, let me remind you.
remind you something. You, you don't have a camel. And the second one said, well, that may be true, but any excuse is fine when I don't want to do something. So what he was saying to his friend was, this rope is more important than you. So just think about that for a second. Okay, just, just let that linger there and, and we'll take a little bit deeper dive on this. So let me give you the context of this parable we're looking at. Uh, we found out the context is important, that we miss a lot of the depth of a parable when we don't understand what's going on immediately before it and, and what it, what's after it. So going all the way back to uh, chapter 12 of Luke, and uh, we, we hear a, a couple of themes begin to rise up in what Jesus is teaching and the stories he's telling. And the first thing we see is in verse, verse, uh, chapter 12, 35, and 40 is that we need to be ready, that we don't know how much time we have. We need to be ready for his arrival. In verse 49 through 53, Jesus brings, says that now as you're getting ready, understand that I didn't come to bring unity to the entire world. I didn't come to bring harmony. Matter of fact, I came to bring division. There is a distinction between who is in the kingdom and who is not in the kingdom. And you're going to have to learn to see this. So they all think he's coming to bring priests and vindication and everything. And he says, I'm coming with a sword. So uh, right after that, he tells them, look around you. Look carefully at what's happening around you. Learn how to interpret the time. Learn how to tell what season it is. And and of course, he's talking about looking around you in in the uh, guise of current events and, and compare that to Scripture and see what's going on so that you can tell where we are in, in God's redemptive timeline. Then in, verse, in chapter 13, he starts out by saying, you need to repent while there's still time. So we find out the time's not limitless, that there, there's a time to repent and there will come a time when there is no time to repent. So it, it, repent while there's time. And, and right after that, he, he talks about living by God's grace. But there's no, there, we, we have a tendency to look at God's grace and go, God's grace is unending. And for, an unbe- for a believer, that's true. But for an unbeliever, there's a time when grace will not be extended. So we see this time thing keeps coming up. And, and so he, right after that, he turns around and he says, the kingdom will begin humbly. Everybody's expecting a big splash. Everybody's expecting the Messiah to come and defeat the Romans. And he says, no, it's going to be a small beginning. And then in verse 10 through 13 of Luke 13, we see a recurring theme. Now, now we, we have to understand what happens because Jesus keeps on healing people on the Sabbath, and he does it in front of the Pharisees, and it's almost like he makes a point, and matter of fact, in this particular anecdote, he says, hmm, you think we ought to heal on the Sabbath, and then he goes ahead and does it, and what Jesus is trying to establish is, is, you know, their idea of the Sabbath, their idea of Shabbat was, it was a day dedicated to the Lord. It was a day set aside to focus upon God. Jesus keeps on coming in and upsetting the apple cart on the Sabbath and demonstrating by these signs and wonders that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, what he's saying is, 
This day that's dedicated towards God, I'm the Lord over that day. I am the Lord over God's day. Do you see what's happening? I'm forgiving people. I'm healing them. I'm restoring them. This is the evidence that I am the Messiah that you're waiting for. They're not getting it. So right after that teaching in verse 14 through 16 of Luke 13, Jesus says, not everyone's going to believe. He keeps on showing them. They keep on rejecting him. He goes, that's right. Not everybody's going. There's a distinction between those who are in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom. And then he goes on to say that those who reject Jesus will be shamed eternally, and those who believe in him will be blessed eternally. Again, that distinction pops up. And then he's on his way down the Mount of Olives, uh, and if, if you, you follow the narrative in Luke and, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, you notice that the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem for that final Passover, the more amped up things get, uh, the more excited things get, the more intense they get. And Jesus is now, he's been to Bethany, he's headed down the side of the Mount of Olives, and he stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. Now there's a picture of the spot where traditionally they say he stopped. This is overlooking Jerusalem. Uh, The Mount of Olives is very steep. The Temple Mount is just to the right behind that olive tree in the picture. But we have to understand what happens here because it's a little bit more intense than most people think. You see, the Jews believe that the Messiah is coming to deliver them. He's coming to vindicate them. He's coming to vanquish the Romans, end all this oppression, set them up on high, and show the world that they are God's people. And now Jesus is on his way down the Mount of Olives. He knows he's headed for the cross. And he stops, and he looks over Jerusalem, and he weeps. These are not tears of joy. These are tears of grief. We look in another gospel, it says, you're missing the time of your visitation. I'm here and you're not receiving me. Jesus is grieving over the fact that they are about to reject him to the point that they want to murder him. It's an intense moment. The people standing around him, why is he crying? We're about to go in the temple. This is the moment. He'll walk in, the Sadducees, the Pharisees will recognize who he is. This is going to be a glorious moment. Why is he crying? Nobody understood. Nobody got it. Jesus wept. So we see these two themes have just been woven in and out of all of these passages of distinguishing between who's in the kingdom, who's not in the kingdom, and the the idea of time. and time is getting short so Jesus brings all this together in chapter 14 and again he begins by healing on the Sabbath once again he keeps on making these statements and and showing them that that absolutely supernatural miraculous things are happening on the Sabbath and they're centered their focus on Christ it's not about the signs and wonders it's about who Christ is He keeps on showing them and they keep on turning away. So he tells this parable of the wedding feast that we read a little bit earlier in verses 7 through 11. And that whole parable is about expectations and assumptions. 
And that's what he's dealing with with these people, isn't it? They have an expectation of what Jesus will do. They have some assumption of where they are in the kingdom. And so Jesus says, look, you know, it's like when you're invited to go to a banquet. Uh, don't just take the seat of honor. Don't go in thinking you're the most important person in the room. That could lead to a lot of embarrassment. It's an insult to your, to your host. It's an insult to the other guests that are coming in. Don't go in thinking you're the star of the show. You're a lot better off sitting in the back of the room and waiting for somebody to come up to you and go, no, 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 you're the star of the show. Come on forward. So that's, a re- that, that, that's why that's there. It's, you know what? They're, they're, this whole kingdom begins humbly. Um, they're, 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 there are unexpected things that are going on. Not everybody who thinks they are part of the kingdom are actually part of the kingdom. And watch out for your pride. Then we come to our passage. And so the title of our sermon today is The Parable of the Great Banquet. This is part four in that mini-series of stories that change the world. And uh, just like the other parables, these are like little vignettes. They're like little plays. Uh, this one rolls out in two scenes, and it might not be readily apparent to you, but I hope by the time we leave that you see that the first scene here is about mercy, and that's in verses 12 through 14. And the second scene is about grace, the grace of God in 15 through 24. So just so that we understand, let's, let's define these terms, mercy. This is the Greek word elios, elios, and it means active compassion. Matter of fact, it means active compassion expressed with joy. So, and, and so we have to understand how this functions. And in order to do that, we have to understand the basics here. And essentially, what the Bible tells us is all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the mark. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin is a violation of God's character and nature. We'll get to that in just a second. It's a violation of God's character and nature. It's not what we were created for. And what our sin earns us is eternal condemnation. Thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what it earns us, it earns immediately. (laughs) But God has mercy. God has compassion. So he doesn't condemn us immediately. You see what I'm saying? Mercy stands between us and instant condemnation for violating what we were created for, for going against the holy nature of God. God expresses mercy by not, by not smiting us. You know how much I love that word. Okay? We exist beyond our sin because of God's mercy. Now, there's a difference between mercy and grace. Grace is the Greek word katos, okay? And we all know that means unmerited favor. The absolutely free expression of the love of God upon those who who have not done anything to earn it. Now, grace is based on two biblical truths. Gird yourself, okay? Here they are. We deserve nothing from God. We haven't earned anything from God. God owes us nothing. Just let that sink in for a second. Anything good we have in our lives 
is a byproduct of the grace of God falling upon us. Now, that's not a current culturally accepted concept. Because if, if you understand that we've earned nothing and God owes us nothing, you understand that we have no rights. Oh no, John, we've got rights. It says so in the Constitution. Sorry, Scripture trumps it. Oh no, 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 God made promises, John. He owes me the... No, no, he doesn't. We have no right. You know why we have no rights? Because when we first sinned, we received condemnation. We're like prisoners in prison, saying, oh, I don't know, I've got a right to be free. That's fine, you're still locked up. We have no rights. We haven't, we haven't earned the right for anything. The only thing we've earned is condemnation. So God owes us nothing. We are rescued from God's judgment by his mercy. And anything we get beyond that comes by his grace. Rescued by mercy, saved by grace. Some people say that mercy is not getting what you deserve and that grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So keep that in mind as we look at mercy and grace in these two scenarios here. So let's look at uh, mercy first. And let, let's start out with this, this, this banquet, this parable that those are invited uh, uh, to this, this wedding, Okay. Verse 8, when you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come up and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, how does, how does that begin to show mercy? Well, this guest who assumes this place of honor, I mentioned a little bit earlier, has just insulted the host. And not only has he insulted the host, but he's insulted everybody who comes in after him. He assumes that he's the center of attention. He assumes that he's the star of the show. And in that culture, because he dishonored the host, because he dishonors the other guests, he deserves to be thrown out of the banquet. But he's not thrown out of the banquet. He's ushered to another seat. The host shows mercy to this guest. And the lesson that we're supposed to learn is don't let pride embarrass you. Don't think that you're better than someone else. Don't look down on the people around you. Don't think that you deserve more than they deserve just because of who you are or what you've done or or so on and so forth. Don't take mercy for granted. Don't elevate yourself. Don't think you're more important than you are. Now, it's important to understand that because it begins to set up what's going to happen next. But 
it also has contemporary ramifications. This is not just about some wedding in the Mideast. And if we understand exactly what the, what the story is saying, we understand that whatever is going on around me is not about me. My church is not about me. My salvation is not about me. My testimony, my walk, the things I do are not about me. It's not all about me. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that our lives are supposed to be about others. That our lives are supposed to be lived out in a manner that is about God and Jesus and his testimony in us. That we're supposed to treat other people as more important than ourselves. That we do what we do for the sake of the gospel, not for our welfare. That God didn't send his son to die on the cross so that we could be happy. That he didn't send his son so that we could be wealthy or healthy or wise. He didn't send his son so that we could find ourselves. So that we could go on some spiritual odyssey and determine what our identity is. Sent his son to die to rescue us from our sins so that his glory could be revealed in our redemption and our transformation. It's about God. We have no rights or privileges. All we have is condemnation. And the problem is that we're so immersed in this me, me, me that when we hear that we have no rights or privileges, all we deserve is condemnation, it becomes offensive to us. We live in a culture that's so self-centered that anything that, that points towards something else becomes objectionable. Huh. So we under, need to understand that God's mercy, mercy delivers us from his wrath and doesn't deliver us into anything. So the guest gets to stay at the banquet we see the host's mercy. We get to stay in the world. We see the mercy of God. Now, there's good news coming, so hold on to that. But the understanding of that should humble us. That should make us grateful that God is preserving us. And Jesus is in the middle of talking to the Pharisees, and we know by now that they're not getting this. They haven't learned this lesson on humility. So he explains the type of humility he's talking about very succinctly in 12 through 14 of Luke 14. He said also to the man who invited them, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, this is how things worked back then. Uh, when you had a party, when you had a celebration, you would send out invitations. And the, the fact that you were sending out invitations was a significant event in the village. You were, whoever received the invitation was expected to reply. And if you replied, then you were kind of obligated to go. But who was sending out the invitations, who was receiving the invitations, that all established a status quo in the village. Oh, did you hear they're having a party up on the hill? Did you get invited? No, I didn't get a ticket. Did you get a ticket? I got a ticket. You got a ticket? Wow, I didn't know you were that high up in, in, in reputation here. Yeah, well, you know, I, I got a ticket. My wife got a ticket too. And my kids got tickets. 
You didn't get a ticket? I mean, that's how it worked, okay? So there, there was a revelation of the uh, status levels in the community by who issued the invitations, by who received them. Uh, the guests that received them were obligated not only to, to RSVP uh, to say that they're coming, but they were further obligated to return the favor. So they knew that if they got invited to the party, that at some point they would stage a party as well and send an invitation to the person who invited them to the first party. Now, that sounds a little bit like the way we do things, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And in, in verse 13, Jesus says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Well, now, it was highly unusual to invite handicapped people to your festival, to your meal, to your celebration, fraternizing with these people. I, I mean, the whole attitude about these people was that there was something wrong with them, that they hadn't received God's blessing, that, that some curse had lighted upon them. And if you were going to fraternize with them, you could lose your social status. I can't believe the people he's hanging around with. Did you know who was at his last party? I don't know if we should hang around with him. What if he caught something? What if something... I don't know if we want to be with people like this. And in verse 14, Jesus says, If you do this, you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What is that? The resurrection of the just. You've got to go all the way back to Daniel. Daniel talks about the resurrection of, of, of the righteous. Matter of fact, it's, it's a little bit of a sub-theme in Hebrew extra-biblical literature. Uh, there, there's a book called the Psalms of Solomon. Uh, and Solomon says a prayer in this, this book that the, that the Lord might reward the righteous at the resurrection and humble the wicked detaining them and destroying them to the last person. And of course, when, when the Hebrews read that, they realized that Solomon was talking about them being righteous and all the Gentiles being destroyed. So th th this whole thing is the resurrection is, is there. They know there's an end time coming, but everybody assumes that when this resurrection comes, that if you're Jewish, you're going to be exalted, and if you're not Jewish, you're going to be destroyed. So Jesus is trying to tell them to humble themselves and treat everybody with respect and compassion. And this is something that they had a hard time with. And it, maybe we can give them a little bit of leeway, in particular the Sadducees and the Pharisees, because for hundreds of years, they had been elevated in status. They were the religious elite. They would walk through town and everybody would go, those are the guys. So after hundreds of years, uh, almost an eon of all of that, they began to take their relationship with God a little bit for granted. It went to their heads. Well, God surely loves me. I'm a Pharisee. God surely loves me. I'm a priest in the temple. God surely loves me more than he loves you because you're not like me. They'd gone to their heads. They thought it was all about them. And, and that neither shows humility nor does it reveal any appreciation for the mercy they received. And that's why they struggle with 
our next scenario, which is about grace. Luke 14, 15, it's starting with 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, again, we have to understand the culture. Uh, the Jews believed there was going to be a messianic banquet and that they would all get invited because they were Jewish. So when he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, he's saying, yeah, yeah, you're talking about the resurrection. We're all going to be there. You know, all the righteous, all of the Jewish people, all of God's people. Huh. They were missing it. And Jesus, Jesus is about to change their way of thinking. So in verse 16, he says, but he said to him, he tells a story. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Uh, again, this would be a huge event in any Mideastern village. Verse 17, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. The guests would have RSVP'd. The guy would have slaughtered the livestock. He would have made the food. Everything would be ready. Uh, and, and now it would be an insult, not just an insult, but a financial hardship not to go to the banquet. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, this is in a culture that values honor and respect. Okay, this is in a culture where relationships are vitally important, particular social relationships. Okay, and it, it's a little bit hard for us to understand because at first the the excuse sounds good. Uh, I, I bought a field. Uh, I got to go check it out and make sure it's okay. Let me let me tell you how they bought fields back then. If you were interested in buying a field, you didn't just look at the real estate listings and buy the field. Okay, you had the fear. It, it was just like buying a home today. You know, when you buy a home, you go out, you look, you walk through the home, you check everything, you look at the faucets, you look at the electrical outlets, you look at, you know, does the site perk, does, does it have these services and everything, and who owns the title? And, of course, that was the big thing in, in Israel is, you know, does this person who's selling the field actually have the right to sell the field? Okay, so we would do all that before buying a house. This guy's saying, oh, I bought a field and I haven't checked it out. Uh, so I'd like to come to the party, but I've got some really important personal business I have to take care of. And what this guest is really saying is that my plans are more important than you are to his guest. I know I said I'd come, but a couple of things have popped up and I'm not going to be able to make it. I didn't plan well enough in my day to include you. Okay, Jesus moves on in verse 19. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. Now, this is a major purchase. This is a huge purchase. This is ten oxen. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Buying oxen was like us buying a car. You know, you don't look at a picture of a car on Craigslist and call the guy up and say, can I send you a check? I'll come out and inspect the car after you've cashed my check. 
The way, the way oxen were sold is they were either sold in the market, in which case there would be a pen or a small field near the market where you could go see the oxen working and determine whether or not they were healthy, whether or not they were strong, and, and that sort of thing. If there was no market, then you would go to the owner of the oxen to his place, and he would spend the day showing you that they were capable of doing the work that you were paying them to do. So this guy's saying, well, I bought these oxen, I bought 10 of them, and I got to go check them out. Once again, his personal desires, his personal plans, his activities are placed in a higher priority than his obligation to his host. In verse 20, and another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, this is a direct reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24, where it talks about newlyweds and being in the armed services. Uh, It says, when a man is, in verse 5, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he's taken. Okay, so there's this exemption for newlyweds not to have to go fight. But it, it has nothing to do with what happens in your village, what happens with social customs and, and obligations. It has to do with military or civil service. Now, things are a little bit different today, but it, it, it's really the same principle. This guy is saying, uh, look, I, I, I wanna, I, you know, I want to stay home with my wife. And he, and he does the same thing that the other two did. The other two say, please, excuse me, But they're not saying, gee, will you find out if it's okay if I don't come? They're saying, I'm not coming. And this guy says, just, I'm not coming. There's no, no, gee, I'm sorry. I I, I know you've gone to a lot of expense. I know this is really, but this is really important. It's just like, no, I'm not going to come. So in verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. He literally said, go bring out any outcast you can find in the street. Now again, we're talking about social status. We're talking about esteem and reputation in the village. This guy does something that is going to ruin his reputation. Go out and bring out all the refuse you can. Instead of these good people who have turned down my invitation. So the servant does it. And in verse 22, the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. We haven't filled all the seats. There's a lot of food left over. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, this is worse than the first. Because he said, okay, bring in the outcasts, bring in the handicapped, bring in those filthy people. At least they're Jewish. So when he says, bring in the people from the roads and, and from the hedgerows, he's talking about travelers, talking about sojourners. These are Gentiles. Shock. You're not going to bring Gentiles in, are you? You're not going to associate with them. I'm glad I didn't come to the party. And then in verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And we have this incredible 
turn around. Look at the outcasts and the Gentiles. They have received grace. Totally unexpected. None of them have done anything to earn anything good. And the good is bestowed upon them because of the goodness of the host, not because of their worthiness. They've received grace. They are the unable. They are the unknowing. They are the unwise. They've done nothing to receive grace. They simply get it. And look at the original invitees. This is the elite of the community, the people that everybody would look up to and go, if anybody's got it together, they do. But they take the host for granted. They thought what the host wanted wasn't all that important. They made up excuses that did nothing more than show their low regard for the host. The result was no banquet. No grace for them. And the clear lesson here is the, the, the obvious lesson is that those who have no regard for the host, and we can just substitute the host for our Father in heaven, those who have no regard for God, regardless of where they live, regardless of who they are, regardless of how they were born, will not receive grace. They may receive mercy in that they are not destroyed immediately, but they have no grace. They can't earn grace. As a matter of fact, their rejection of God disqualifies them from receiving grace. Look at this in verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus overlooking Jerusalem and weeping because those were the chosen people. Those were the ones that God was going to use to bring his message to the world. Those were the ones that were going to be a blessing to all nations. And they got so self-consumed, so prideful, and so self-centered that they've exempted themselves. Wow. They were like the guy with the camel, weren't they? guy with the rope and no camel. Any excuse is good as long as I don't want to do this. Do we ever do that? Do we ever make excuses to God why we can't do what he calls us to do? Do we ever justify it in our mind? Surely God would understand it. Couldn't make it to church this morning. It's been a busy week. My car broke down. Surely God would understand that, that I, I know he doesn't want me to sin, but you know everybody at work is doing this thing, and if I don't do it, I'm going to be embarrassed. Do we ever make excuses to God as to why we can't read our Bibles, why we can't pray, why we can't share Jesus Christ? I don't know the four spiritual laws. I might mess the gospel up. You can't mess the gospel up. <laughs> Do we ever make excuses to God as to why we don't walk the way he tells us to walk? Now, 
that won't exempt us from his grace. If you know him as Lord and Savior, you've received his grace. But it may make sitting at the table a little bit more difficult. (laughs) It may mean that we get shuffled around and embarrassed just a little bit because we're not walking the way he wants us to walk. What's important to us? You see, the problem that the Pharisees had, what was most important to them, was them. God calls us to make him the most important thing in our lives. 